And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest is Brian Copeland. He's probably best known for his stand-up comedy work, as well as a solo show he did called Not a Genuine Black Man. It's the longest-running solo show in San Francisco's theatrical history, and it also played in over 30 cities and had an off-Broadway run as well. As a stand-up, he's been the opening act for an array of major entertainers. People have opened for him as well, but just let me mention some of these uh, golden names. Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Natalie Cole, Smokey Robinson, Ringo Starr, and The Temptations, and Bill Cosby, a name that still is to be reckoned with uh, in entertainment, despite uh, the infamy. We may even talk about Cosby. Um, He's also worked in radio and television. That's where we got to be friends. And um, he's written books. He's had roles in feature films. Uh, He headlined other solo shows, including The Waiting Period, a poignant traumatization of depression and suicide ideation. And most recently, Grandma and Me, and Grandma and Me is still running. It's an ode to single parents. That's the subtitle of it. Very creative, very funny guy. He also hosts a weekly podcast called Copeland's Corner. And welcome to all our listeners, and welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, and welcome, Brian Copeland. Well, well thank you for having me. It's about time. About time. 25 huh? weeks. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we decided we'd get around to some of the also-rans a little later. So <laughs> here you are. You know, I saw different figures about uh, Not a Genuine Black Man. I saw 800 performances, and then I saw 900 performances. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you been keeping a body count of this? I've been keeping a count clo- um, roughly, and we're, uh, where? Um, I'm at um, somewhere around 926. I'm going to get to 1,000 and do a big show when I get to 1,000. It's an amazing success story and more glory to you. Uh, I was thinking about something, though, to begin in a a little bit of a challenging way. You've got lots of creativity. I mean, that's an understatement, not only in terms of comedy, but also in terms of very poignant kinds of monologues, let's call them for lack of a solo shows, whatever the word is. Solo uh, plays. Solo plays, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think your creativity comes from? Where where does the stuff emerge from or how does it process? Can you talk about that? Have you thought about that? Um, I've thought some about it. Um, in terms of entertainment, it comes from it comes from childhood, you know, from being the only black face in the room and being bullied and picked on. And I realized on the playground in about the fifth grade that if they were laughing, then they weren't picking on me. Then they weren't calling me names and they weren't bullying me. And I went from there into doing um, plays in theater and and junior high and then through high school and in college when I fell into stand-up. You know, stand-up was just a lark. I didn't realize that I was going to be a lawyer. I was I was at Holy Names University. I was in pre-law. The plan was to go to Bolt, and I was going to be a... Uh, I wanted to do criminal defense because I loved Perry Mason, and I wanted to get all these innocent people off. And uh, and I stepped on a stand-up stage, and that was it. I, I was just in love with it. So um, what where my career really shifted was when I started doing solo plays because the plays that I do, for the most part are confessional. Uh, my stand-up was about um, topical things or observational things, but I never told you anything about me. And uh, in my solo plays, I, I really go there. And there's something cathartic about it. You know, it's almost like writing in a journal. That, that, that's, the, 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 uh, that's the mindset I go into when I'm writing a new solo play. Is I'm, I'm, I, I, the mindset is I'm writing in a journal, I'm writing in a diary, nobody's ever going to read this. And that way I won't censor myself. And then you get up and do it. 
then I get up and I do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me get back to humor for a moment, though. How do you know something's funny? Uh, it has to make me laugh. And I learned that early on. You can't, you, you can't write something and go, boy, I hope they think this is funny. You have to laugh at it yourself. And if so you you've laugh, got an inner Geiger counter kind of or something yeah, along those lines? Something along those lines. Yeah. And, and what the comics rule is, is that you try it three times. And um, you, you, you have to think it's funny yourself. And you try it three times. And if they don't laugh all three times, they just don't get it. <laughs> that's what it means it just means they just don't get it you have to kind of make them like you though too don't you you have to kind of win over an audience I did st- an article once about doing stand up at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco where I went up and I realized I had to get this audience of course by that time they were kind of drunk and it was faded that I would not necessarily have the uh, engagement that I was hoping for but you really have to get them to want to hear you yeah, you've got to have them on your side. And what's interesting about that is you can get to a certain level, you know, like a level of, you mentioned Cosby, a level of a Cosby or, or Seinfeld, where you have a certain amount of gravitas where just by walking on the stage, you get a standing ovation and you get applause for a couple of minutes. And then they already like you. Anybody else, you know, who they don't know, really, you've got to go over and you've, you've, got, you've got a couple of minutes. You know, you don't, you don't have five You've got like two minutes. Did you get those initial applauses? Uh, were you at that stage in your um, career? So, you know, some places, some places, yes. I mean, not the standing ovations, no. No. I never got a standing ovation until I started doing solo plays. Yeah. And, and then you got yeah. a lot of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, almost every time you performed. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate pretty much. Yeah. Um, which gives you more pleasure? Which gives you more of a lift? Oh, the solo place, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's much more fulfilling. Because with stand-up, it's joke, 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 joke. And it's LPMs, laughs per minute. And you need to be getting three laughs per minute. Uh, in terms of the solo plays, um, I can, you know, be funny. And then I can go uh, serious. I can do drama. I can talk about, you know, things that would be difficult to talk about if it were straight stand-up. Yeah, I mentioned, in fact, uh, the stand-up, uh, excuse me, the dramatization you did about suicide ideation and yeah, your own the, struggles with the waiting period with suicide the waiting mm-hmm. period and also uh there's a lot of humor in there though i mean it's almost as if you need it for levity and relief material don't mm-hmm. you well the way that I, I i've always described it what my style is, is i dig a great big hole and right before i get to the earth's core i say something funny and pull you out of it because you need to have the audience needs to have that kind of relief you know especially if you're going really heavy otherwise it can be unbearable you know, so you've got to have that that laughter in order to give them a break. But you said this is cathartic. I mean, does it really serve you psychologically? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Does, and, and, and is it different? Every performance different? You 800, 900, 1,000? They're all different? Every single one is different. You never know how an audience is going to react. Some audiences with genuine um, laugh in all the right places, uh, gasp in all the right places, uh, are, are disgusted in all the right places. Other audiences... I will get nothing. I mean, I'll never forget when I, when I did it in Los Angeles, on press night in Los Angeles, and I got nothing. I didn't get a laugh. I didn't get a gasp. I, it was kind of like, are you guys breathing out there? And then I, I got to the end, and it was kind of like, well, I did the best I could, and they were on their feet cheering. And I hmm. got, a, I got a, a, a review that was like my mom wrote it you know, in the Los Angeles times. And it was kind of like, you can't go by what it is, you know, that they're, how it is that they're reacting. 
You, you know, you just can't. Some audiences are into the comedy. Others are into the drama. Others are, are just really, really into the But story. that must have been affecting you during the performance, didn't it? It, it, it did, because there are places where I'd never not gotten a laugh, yeah. and, and I didn't get a laugh. Or places where, you know, I, I it never been an instance of, of not getting a gasp. Charlie Varon, who, uh, who we both know, uh, told me early on, never try to understand why the audience does what it does. Well, when, if I asked you to think about this uh, before we came on here for this episode, when you think about the biggest laughs you've ever got, what comes to mind? Either stand-up or the single dramas. Um, one of the biggest laughs I ever got, truth be told, was dealing with a heckler, and it was really pretty. It was pretty bad that the, the comeback. This is probably one of the biggest laughs I ever got in my career. Is we're not uh, censoring you here, so you can. Yeah, I'm not censored here. So, um, this is uh, probably early two thousands when when Cobb's Comedy Club was over in the Cannery. And uh, Tom Sawyer, uh, who who owned and ran Cobbs for years and years, and I owe a great deal of my career to Tom to Tom Sawyer. Um, Tom would have Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday as professional showcase night. So if you were a a regular headliner at Cobbs, uh, you could go on and and you know do twenty minutes. And so I would go, you know, probably twice a week and just work stuff out and do stuff. So this is where Robin Williams stole all your material or everybody's material back in the that, day. No, that's the zoo. <laughs> yeah. That's the zoo. Um, and so there was this, that, that room in the cannery was a tourist room. You get a lot of tourists who came in because of where it was located. And there were these two people from Texas who were sitting in the front row. Guy has the cowboy hat on. They were older folks and just heckled everybody. I mean, everybody who came up, they had something to say and were yelling and, and yelling at them and saying things. And comics were trying to come back, but it wasn't landing. Yeah, it wasn't landing. Uh, they were, we had found out through, you know, interchange with other comics that they were from Texas. So this is during the rolling blackouts. Okay, so that gives you an idea when this was. When the first time that we had rolling blackouts because of the energy issue uh, in, in the Bay Area. So I get on stage and they yell something at me, and I forget what it was that they yelled. And I said something back, and, and the guy says to me, "At least in Texas, we got electricity." And I said, "Well, at least in California, the president can drive around in a convertible without getting his head blown off." <laughs> and and the place went crazy. That's why I said it was harsh. It was just the first thing that came into my mind. And the place just absolutely went crazy, and they shut up for the rest of the night. I mean, there's only one way to describe that. I mean, you know, you can think of lines. People, I know a lot of stand-up comics say, I have these heck, lines for hecklers, you know, that I just pull out. They're in my quiver. I'm ready to put them yeah. down and everything. That was inspirational. That was in the moment. Yeah, that was in the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was in the moment. It just came out. You know, and as I said, it was in, obviously it was in bad taste and was really you know, rough. Bad taste. There was a group called the Dead Kennedys that were going around making. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. true. But you know, sometimes the harshest humor and the and the I, I, can you say this word dark humor, the darkest mm -hmm. humor. You know, these mm -hmm. days all this kind of uh, concern with canceling uh, for all kinds of words. I was thinking about when you talk about depression. Did you use like black hole or? Black Dog of Depression, which is what Churchill supposedly described yeah, it Yeah, that's how he described it. Um, no, I, 
it's been a while since I've done the waiting period. The waiting period's coming back in March. Uh, at, you at helped the, a lot of kids. I want to put that in there because kudos for that. A lot of kids who were going through depression were really Thank helped you. by what you would, I mean, it served as education. Yeah. Well, what we've done is we had a project that I, um, that I started right after Robin Williams died. And the idea was to present the waiting period on Sundays to the general public for free as a means of education for people That's who great. had friends yeah. and family who dealt with it and as an intervention for people who were going through it. And I've heard some stories. So um, so we did this all the way up to the shutdown. And so now we're starting again. We're fun- what we do it through a GoFundMe is how we fund it. And uh, it's uh, we're going to start again March. I want to say March 16th is when the first show is. And it'll be a couple of Sundays a month, and it's free. It's absolutely free because I don't want the cost to be a barrier. I want anybody to be able to come and see this. But there are people who've written me whose lives were literally saved by that show. Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful, and uh, kudos to you on that. And I want to talk more about that perhaps in time here. But getting back to what I was saying before about dark humor, gothic mm. humor, gallows mm. humor, whatever you want, sometimes those things that cut to the bone the most mm-hmm. are the funniest things, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But nowadays, I mean, you have comics like Cleese and uh, said this to me in an interview, uh, people like Chris Rock, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, they can't go on college campuses. No. They can't do this stuff because it's too no. PC. No, uh, you can't. And I, I played colleges coming up and I wouldn't play a college. I take it back. I would play a college with a solo show. I wouldn't play a college with stand-up because, you know, with the solo show, it's, it's kind of different because it's a play and they realize that it's a play because I'm doing characters and everything else. But with a, uh, with straight stand-up, no. Because you get the hisses and you get the boos about, uh, I, I mean, for the most innocuous of things. Um, and so it's just, uh, no, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it today. You got any thoughts about what's often described as probably inappropriately the woke movement, if it's indeed a movement? I, I say inappropriately because black folks originally had that idea of woke and then it was kind of misappropriate. It was like a cultural appropriation, you know, taken yeah. by a lot of mainly young white people, I think. Well, my thoughts on it, you know, without without using the word, since it's been so demonized now um, by, by the right, is that what the whole idea is about is about having understanding and empathy for people who are not white. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. You know, being sympathetic, understanding that, you know, when I'm white and I get pulled over, uh, you know, by the police, it's not the same experience that I would have if I were African-American. And I would not necessarily the same experience I would have if I were African-American and pulled over by the police. It is teaching the full history of, uh, of, of America, uh, an, an inclusive history of America, instead of cherry-picking and perpetuating the myth that you and I were taught when we were in grade school. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. Something I, I'm, I'm uh, in, in San Leandro, which is where I live. We had a, a shooting um, a couple of years ago of an unarmed African American man in a Walmart parking lot. And the man was in mental distress. The officer was fired immediately. Then, after an, uh, an outcry, uh, he was indicted. Uh, I don't know where that case stands now, but the city, but the citizens de- demanded a community police review board to uh, to oversee the actions of police and co- police complaints and so forth. So I've been appointed to that board. I'm, I'm a commissioner on that board. So we had to go through 30 hours of training as part of, of the job of being a commissioner on this board. And part of it was the history of policing in America. And what I was shocked to discover is that the history of policing in America can be traced 
to the slave catcher patrols who caught fug- who went after and caught fugitive slaves that that it can be traced directly there's a direct lineage from from that concept to what it is we have what what it is we see in America right now mm-hmm. teaching things like that in school um i think are important and, well, and, they are teaching things like that now. I know they're in the, in the textbooks, uh, maybe not in certain states. I was going to say not in Florida. Below the Mason-Dixon line or not the Texas. Texas state. No, but they're, yeah. we're moving more in that direction. There's no question about mm-hmm. it. So, but that's, that, that's um, in terms of the woke movement, that, that, that's how it is that I, uh, how I interpret it. Well, that's the positive side of what you're talking about, that people are becoming more enlightened, more aware, more educated, and so forth. But I guess what, what some of the complaints are that it pushes too far. It becomes sort of like the Stasi looking for things that maybe aren't even there or seeing things that are much too over the top and even silly uh, or ridiculous. Um, I think both are true to some degree. But this is Black History Month. We're talking in February. I hate Black History Month. I was going to ask you. I think I had a feeling that you might. Why? I hate Black History Month because why is it that um, that Black History has to be has to be segregated to a month to a first and the shortest month of the year? Might I add, <laughs> we get an extra day every four years. But but for the most part, the shortest month, the month of the year to cram everything in in one month, and then the rest of the year you're teaching what about history? You know, why not just teach an inclusive history and teach, I'm talking about in schools, because that's where most of us learn our, our history, you know, other than those. I mean, I like to read, you know, a lot of biographies and memoirs and things like that. So I know a lot of history uh, uh, outside of what I learned in a classroom. You read the new Frederick Douglass biography? No, I have it, though. Terrific. I haven't read it yet, but I've got it. Yeah. But I've got it. Um, so, you know, why why isn't uh, why if history were taught in a comprehensive way, we would need Black History Month. If history were taught in a comprehensive way, I always think about what Gore Vidal said about teaching history. He said, why do students resist learning about history? There's nothing more interesting, really. I mean, they're great narratives. They're compelling stories. Mm-hmm. They're fascinating. They're essentially, especially when you're talking about the history of this republic, they get us immersed in our antecedents and some of the terrible parts of it, but also some of the glorious parts of it. We've got some questions coming in uh, and some folks uh, who have questions for you. Here, the first one's from Seattle. Performing for a live in-person audience differs from performing on camera. How did you survive as a performer during the pandemic? Um, I struggled. Uh, the only performance I was able to really do was my podcast, was Copeland's Corner, uh, which is, it's it's me and it's a panel of comics and uh, we talked about the news of the week. And that was kind of the only um, performative thing that I was able to do. Mainly what I did during the pandemic to keep from losing my mind was I wrote. Um, I wrote a play. Uh, I wrote a crime novel that's now being uh, shopped to publishers. Um, I wrote jokes and things that I, I knew I wanted to you know, develop at some point later on down the line. Um, but that's what kept me sane you know, creatively. But in terms of performance, it was hell. I mean, it was absolute hell not to be able to get on the stage and, and to directly relate with people. You talk about writing jokes. Um, you um, carved out a niche for you, carved out many niches for yourself, but our mutual friend Ron Owens used to have a regular traditional, uh, call it an event, that was a broadcast having to do with joke telling. And, yeah, the R&B Joke Hour on yeah, KGO. it was called the Joke Hour. It was on KGO, which is now I don't know, a sports betting station, whoever would have. Uh, conceived or imagined. Don't get me started. <laughs> but 
you know, there was always that concern, you know, could were the jokes going to be a little too blue or were they going to be, you know, could you tell them because it was radio and all that, FCC regulations. Um, but there were a lot of funny jokes that were told on that. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense now, I don't know, what do you think about joke telling? I mean, what's happened to joke telling? Uh, is it a lost art to some extent because of the internet? Is it something that you still relish yeah. and love and people still tell jokes um but you I mean going back going back to your question about wokeness um the last one that ron and i did and we did it for 20 years we did it um uh, maybe three or four times a year we did it on a friday for 20 years and uh and ron's wife jan uh, who would go through and sort all the jokes and print each joke out that we were going to do on a separate piece of paper, kept all the jokes for all the 20 years. So the last one we did that we didn't know was the last one that we were doing, we decided we were going to, we were going to put all the jokes together and make a book, you know, make a book of all the, all the, all of our favorite jokes from the joke hour. And, uh, good did, idea. What happened? What happened was was Me Too happened, um, wokeness happened. Uh, there are because most of these jokes are really politically incorrect. Most of them, we could we could never sell that book today. There's not a, not a prayer could we sell that book today. So that's the other side that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, and one has to take into account both sides. I keep hoping things will leaven out. Like the, I mean, I can remember having gone through the '60s. People walking around reading Mao's Red Book, you know. Or, uh, I mean, wow. eventually things started to even out. Um, maybe that'll happen again. Here's a here's one of our team, Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri, who says, "How did you develop the confidence to go from comedy as a form of self defense?" He puts that in quotes in school to intentionally subjecting yourself to such scrutiny and vulnerability in a one person play. Um, that's a jump. The one person play. Was not a genuine black man was a, a complete and total fluke. Um, I had been doing stand up for twenty years, and I had always, you know, af after nine eleven happened, I decided that life was short, and you never know, you know, you never know when your planes are going to hit your tower to be crass. And and the one thing I'd always wanted to do was a one person play where I could be funny as well as as be serious. And um, I didn't know what to write about. And Carl Reiner, I had as a guest on my program, Carl told me to find the piece of ground that I alone stood on that nobody else did and write from there. So I got this anonymous letter in the mail shortly after that conversation saying that um, it was from an African-American man who said that uh, he was disgusted when he heard my voice because I'm not a genuine black man. And I thought, bingo, that there it is. So, um, did he mean because you didn't have an accent? Or? Well, I didn't understand what he meant, and that, that was the whole thing it was an exploration of what does that mean. And then my background is growing up in one of the most racist suburbs in the country, and well, you those know, racist suburbs that you still live in, in I still live in because it's now one of the most diverse yeah. suburbs in the country. And uh, um, so the idea was, is I, this was going to be a six week run that I expected nobody to see. And that was why, you know, I, I was able to make that jump because I wasn't worried about it. It was no big deal. Nobody was going to see it. Um, I do it for six weeks. I was booked at, I was booked at Rooster Teeth Feathers in Sunnyvale at the end of that six weeks. And then the improv after that. And, you know, people came 
and the critics kept writing about it. And it ran, the original run was a couple, a few years, the original run. It was more identified with the Marsh in San Francisco. Yeah, though. that was that was the, the, the home base of it. But uh, but the way I made that jump was the, the idea being that it was a fluke, that I was writing this, thing. I wrote with that same mindset, this is a journal, nobody's ever gonna hear this, nobody's ever gonna see this. And so that way I can be honest, I won't self-censor. And uh, and I went up and I did it, and I, did, I expected nobody to be there, you know, and it was no big deal, and I'm gonna go and do my act again. And, uh, and here I sit 19 years later, um, and I'm on my fifth solo play. But and uh, did, uh, the connection to Carl Reiner, did that lead you to get to know Rob Reiner? Yeah. Um, what happened was, is um, the second week of performances of the show, um, I, I had a, a tape done of it. And the idea for the tape was that I'm going to just uh, uh, record this so that someday when I have grandchildren, I'm gonna go, oh, this is something I did when I was young. And, and I had Carl on the show, and I said, thank you so much for your advice. You gave me about finding my piece of ground. I found it. I wrote the show. People seem to like it. He goes, oh, do you have a tape? And I go, yeah, coincidentally, I just made one this week. And he goes, well, send it to me. So I sent it to him, and, he, and I get a call like three days later going, this is amazing. This is great. I want Robbie to see this. And I go, who the hell's Robbie? <laughs> Meet him. Meet him. <laughs> <laughs> and he still calls himself that. And, and, uh, and he sent it to Rob. And Rob sat and watched it, and that's that's how Rob got involved. Yeah. So it's, as I said, the whole thing's a fluke. Whole thing's a fluke. It was so, never planned. I mean, there's a lot to philosophize about that. I mean, how successes happen just because of flukes and so forth. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, another question about the style of satire. Does it have a place in today's politically correct, hypersensitive audiences? What do you think? Um, satire is a big word. I mean, in fact, uh, it comes my literary mind thinks about, you know, Juvenalian satire and Swiftian satire and yeah. all that. But uh, when you think of satire, do you think, I mean, you satirize, you do satire in of your course. work, you do parody. Of course. Stuff. I think there's always going to be a place for it. It just depends on how you do it. You know, how, how you do it depends on what the current, how you do it and how it's going to be received, be received has to do with, uh, with what the current climate is. You got to feel that out, though. That's sometimes mm -hmm. very tricky. Here's James from San Diego. Could you talk about the biggest challenges in your career and how have you overcome them? Biggest challenges in my career. Um, I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges in my career um, coming up in stand up. And again, I don't see this in, in solo plays, but coming up, you know, I, I started stand up comedy two weeks after I graduated from high school. I used to go to clubs in San Francisco with a fake ID when I was like 16, 17. Um, and one of the big challenges, you know, from the you know 80s to the early 2000s, which is when I was performing in clubs, was being African-American and, and, and not being ghettoized and, and being looked at as a comic instead of being looked at as an African-American comic. And the example I give is there was, I can't tell you how many clubs, um, clubs that I regularly worked where I, you know, you call to, to get dates or call to see what's, you know, you coordinate calendars and see when you're going to come in for next year. And, and I can't tell you how many I would say, okay, well, I'm free the week of March 16th. And they go, we've already got a black comic on for that week. So, <laughs> um, well, wait a minute, hold on, hang on a second. Do I do political, you know, satire and, and topical humor? Are we telling the same kinds of jokes? Because if we're telling the same kinds of jokes, that makes sense. But if we're not, you wouldn't say I have two white men. I already have a white man on this bill. You wouldn't say that. 
So, but that's probably the biggest obstacle. And in terms of overcoming it, I had, I never overcame it. I mean, that was still going on up to the, the, the point when I, and I don't know if it goes on today, I haven't played the club in years, but uh, up to the point when I started doing theaters. But that was absolutely the biggest challenge. Well, in those days, um, I think we were already talking about comics like Dick Gregory and Richard Pryor, weren't we? Godfrey Cambridge, I mean, mm -hmm. Flip Wilson. There were black comics who certainly were well-known and appeared on things like The Tonight Show and mm -hmm. uh, had status. Mm -hmm. But there was also that sense of what you're describing, which is tokenism, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd call it tokenism as much as... You know, as I said, instead of being looked at as a comic, I was looked at as a black comic, even though I did material that was very, very different than what um, what most African-American comics at the time were doing. The kind of stuff that I was doing coming from my perspective and the kinds of jokes and things that I that I was doing at the time. Well, in that way, Bill Cosby did open a lot of doors, didn't he? he? Oh, absolutely. He yeah. did. Absolutely. He did. I mean, he, in, in many ways, uh, what people liked about him was that. He didn't identify as being racial to much of a degree. I mean, he did when he talked about, you know, some of the kids he grew up with and that became cartoons and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But for the most yeah, part, the, the comedy, the material of the comedy, the content of the comedy was what you could call universal. Well, he deliberately made his act colorblind. Yeah. You know, looking at, you know, the, the great documentary that Kamal Bell did, It's Time to Talk About Cosby, and uh, things that I've read about him over the years is he deliberately made a choice to be colorblind, and he took a lot of grief for it especially in the 60s. He took a lot of grief for not really being black. And well, the joke in the 80s was we need a black, we need a black version of the Cosby show. That was the joke in the 80s. Um, well, did a lot of that heat that Cosby took, a lot of it came from the black community too. Oh yeah, that's I mean, what I'm talking about. This is the black arts movement, everything nationalistic and, you know. I'm, I'm talking specifically about the black yeah. community. That's where it came from and him not really being black and all that stuff in the 60s because of the fact that he did not, like Dick Gregory, um, address those issues. Instead, you know, he you know talked about the car that went 100 miles an hour that he got and, you know, things things of that nature. He, but he did not touch anything that was that dealt with race. He was also the sidekick of Robert Culp, and that idea of the black as the sidekick, not only blacks. I mean, you go back in, in literature to Ishmael and Queequeg or, you know, um, James Fenimore Cooper, there's always the sidekick who is a person of color, indigenous or black or whatever. Uh, and Rochester with Jack Benny. Now, mm -hmm. A lot of people would not know Brian Copeland was a major, major a, almost major. authority on Jack Benny. Yeah. That goes back to your childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rochester was from Oakland. People don't know that. And the reason Rochester's voice was like that was because Rochester was a newspaper boy, one of those extra, extra read all about it kids selling um, San Francisco papers. And he ruined his vocal cords screaming to, to sell, trying to scream over the other uh, um, uh, uh, newsboys. Um, going back for a second to what you're talking about with Cosby and, and Robert Culp, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you two interesting stories about that. Um, one is that... Um, the way, the way that he got that gig was that he was on The Tonight Show and Rob Reiner, who was 15 years old, his parents were out at some event and he stayed up past his bedtime and saw Cosby for the first time and just cracked him up. And then his dad came home and goes, what are you doing? He goes, oh, you got to see this guy, dad. You got to see this guy. And he did as much of his act as he could remember. So the next day, Carl uh, contacts the NBC and gets a copy of the, the film from the night before and loves it and calls Cosby in. You know, calls Cosby in for a meeting with he uh, with him and Sheldon Leonard, 
And, um, and Sheldon Leonard at the time was partners with Danny Thomas and they, they did the Andy Griffith show together. They did, uh, Gomer Pyle together. They did the Dick Van Dyke show together and so forth. So, um, Sheldon decides that he, they're doing the spy show, I spy, and he wants Cosby to be the other spy. And Danny Thomas says, no. You know, that America's not ready for that. America's not going to buy that. Absolutely not. And they got into a fight over it. And that's why they split up. Cosby, to, Rob told me the story about discovering him. And Cosby told me the story about that that's why Thomas and Leonard, who did all those classic shows, that's why they split up. And then, and then you know, just to show you how things go around, because Cosby won four Emmys for that show. Um, the first thing that Danny Thomas produced by himself with Danny Thomas Productions was The Mod Squad. Oh, wow. All right, now I have to tell you a story because you just triggered it in me. Uh, I think it's a hilarious story. You should never give that preface to telling a story, but uh, because never. if it's not funny, you know, <laughs> then you're sunk. Um, but Tobias Wolf, to drop a name, the novelist of real cachet and real accomplishment, told this story to me. And the story was that Ronald Reagan uh, was giving a, um, was, was at a uh, informational uh, presentation when he was president in the second term. And the ambassador from Lebanon was there talking about how Lebanon was endangered. They had enemies all around them and so forth and Hezbollah inside and all these kinds of things. He's got the map and People never saw Reagan looking so rapt. He was staring and was at the, actually coming out of his seat. And when it was over, he ran up to this guy, this ambassador from Lebanon. He said, anybody tell you how much you look like Danny Thomas? <laughs> <laughs> that is makes, a funny story. makes that a great story. It's <laughs> Reagan, you know? Yeah. I mean, who, all right. Here's Chris from Tempe, Arizona. He wants to know how Love you, Tempe, by the way. I used to play there all the time. There's an improv. It used maybe, to be an improv. Maybe Chris remembers seeing you, but he wants to know, how'd you build your network and community so that when a fluke like trying out your first solo play had a chance to go viral? Um, uh, I'll tell you how I ended up at the, at the Marsh and ended up uh, with, with David Ford is uh, there was a, a review written by Stephen Wynn of the San Francisco Chronicle, who was one of the theater reviewers at the time. Um, this is in 2003. And he wrote a, a review of a play by uh, Bob Duback, who I used to open for as a stand-up. And he had switched over to doing one-man shows. And he wrote this show called The, the Male Intellect and Oxymoron. That was the name of the show. And he got this rave review. He got the little man jumping out of the chair. So I wrote to Stephen Wynn, who I did not know, and, you know, told him who I was. And I want to write a one-man show, but I don't know how to start, you know. And he wrote me back and says, we need a director. And I said, well, who's a good director? And he gave me two names, and one of the names was David Ford at the Marsh. So I sent emails to both. He gave me their email addresses. I sent emails to both, and David Ford got back to me. And uh, I met him at the Marsh. I told him what my idea was. I wanted to do a story about, you know, about racial identity and about growing up, you know, as the only black face in the room. And um, he really connected with it. And we started to work together. We're still working together. Um, very, and, very capable guy. I mean, as a director. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how, uh, in his home theater is the Marsh. And that's how I ended up there. That's how I ended up there. So thanks to the Chronicle, thanks to Stephen Wynn, is how I ended up there. And the rest is history, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, you still watch a lot of television? Um, 
I, I watch as much as I can. Um, I, I watch as much as I can. Because you're uh, kind of a, a, a trivial expert on yeah, TV. I yeah, mean, I mean, We used to have dinners, I should, full disclosure here, I mean, Brian and I have been friends for a long time. We used to have dinners with Jerry Nackman, may he rest in peace, who is yeah. well entertainment writer and theater writer, uh, critic for the Chronicle, also wrote some very funny books and yes, he did. very good books. And uh, Bob Sarlot, a name that's recognizable in the world of stand-up comedy, used to be on the Letterman show at least once a year. Um, and I mean, I used to be in awe of all that you had absorbed from, maybe it was that a lonely kid in San Leandro with the, with the boob tube in front of you. But, you know, it's, it's not only being familiar with all those TV shows, but knowing a lot of the trivial detail about a lot of those TV shows, you obviously immerse yourself into the Oh, history. I just, you know, I just have always loved that stuff. And not just TV, but old radio. I'll tell you another story. I had, um, when I, I was hosting a show called Seven Live uh, that was on ABC in the afternoons around, like, I think 2010 to 2012 it ran. Uh, and James Lipton was on as a guest. And during the break, I start talking to James Lipton, not about Inside the Actors Studio, but about the fact that his career started when he was a teenager at WXYZ in Detroit, and he played the Lone Ranger's nephew, Dan Reed, and uh, on that show. And, uh, and he was blown away that I knew that, you know. Um, and he says, okay, who played the Lone Ranger? And I said, Brace Beamer. And I don't know how I had it. I don't know where it was. It was somewhere in the vault in my mind. And his jaw dropped. And he, you know, he actually went and talked to the executive producer about how does he know all this stuff? How does he know all this stuff? I don't know. It's an idiot savant thing, <laughs> I think. But what about growing up and seeing all that TV almost without any black faces? I mean, was it, were you cognizant of it? Or is it no, I wasn't. And here's why. Because when you're used to that's all you're seeing, you don't, you know. There were shows with African-Americans that my family watched. We watched Sanford and Son. We watched Good Times. We watched The Jeffersons. But that was really about it. And when you saw on a uh, a, a, a show that had a, a predominantly white cast, when you saw a person of color, it was always in a demeaning role. You know, I Love Lucy is, is in my opinion, probably one of the finest comedies, if not the finest comedy ever made for the medium. And I don't think in the whole nine years that that show ran, there was an African-American on that show. I don't think. There might have been like a porter on a train or something. But that's what it is that you would that well, you People would, see. would say, yeah, but Ricky Ricardo is Hispanic. Come on, Cuban. You know, it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. You didn't have any Latinos. You didn't have any Mexican-Americans no. like that. It's... Uh, Kyle from Chicago, Illinois. How has the explosion of digital performance content affected, if at all, how you perform live? Um, be honest with you, not at all. And maybe that's to my detriment. You know, um, everybody wants short. You know, they want short bits and short clips. And, and I don't do, uh, you know, I don't do that. You know, I have a story I want to tell. I tell the story. I'm not going to bastardize it, you know, so there can be a three-minute clip on YouTube. You're not all YouTube. over TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> no. That's the one, the one that I don't have an account on is TikTok. Yeah, well, TikTok is getting lots of data on all of us right now as we speak, yeah. in fact, for that matter. That's another story uh, that um, we don't need to go into here. You know, you were born in Akron, though, right? Mm -hmm. the and rubber, you're from Cleveland. The rubber capital of the world. <laughs> yeah, near Cleveland where I grew up and so forth. Uh, but you're not a genuine black man was built around the city of San Leandro, mm -hmm. which at one time was one of the most racist cities in America, really. Racist suburbs, yeah. Yeah. It really was because of redlining, and it was, you know, it was designed to be that way because of, uh, 
the the influx of African Americans into Oakland, which is on the border. If you're if you're not in the Bay Area, it's it's uh, San Leandro's on the border of Oakland, and so at, during World War II, you had a lot of African Americans who moved to Oakland to work in the shipyards and so forth, and afterwards decided to stay. You know, I'm not going back to Mississippi. Why? And so because of that, you had a white flight from Oakland into San Leandro, which was redlining and uh, which had a policy of, of African-Americans not being welcome there. You read Isabel Wilkerson's book? Both of them. Yeah. The Warmth of Other Sons and Cast? Yeah. Both yeah. of them. Both, yeah. both terrific books, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Um, your grandmother has played such a central role. I mean, the newest production you're doing. Uh, and in fact, I was at... Um, uh, one of your performances where she was in the audience and, you know, there was a lot of lavish praise from you, appropriately so. I mean, she was a major figure in your life. She raised me. She raised you, yeah. Um, but now it's kind of evolved, your relationship with your grandmother, into some sense about single parents and the role of single parents. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Um my sister had been storing all my grandmother's things, and it was years before we went through them because it was just too sad and too emotional. And so we finally went through them, and um, my sister hands me this piece of paper that she pulls out of a box, and it's the guardianship paper. I'd never seen it. It's the guardianship paper from um, when Grandma was granted guardianship of the five of us ranging in age from 1 to 15 after my mother died in 1979. And it was something about seeing that paper, uh, seeing that in black and white and realizing, oh, my God, she was 57 years old and took on five children with a Jim Crow Birmingham High School education and took on five children ranging in age from 1 to 15 all by herself. How the hell did she do that? You know, and then... Um, it's heroic. Yeah, yeah, beyond heroic. And uh, so I, I wrote this story. What Grandma Me is about is I went through a divorce in 2000, 2001 of, of my children's mother, and I was granted primary custody of, of the three kids. Uh, to, they, were, they were first grade, fifth grade, and seventh grade. So what the play is, is it's two storylines. It's me. It's the first year that I have my three by myself and trying to think about how grandma did things and how she would do things. And the first year that grandma had us by, um, by herself. And, uh, and I interweave the, the, the two narratives together. Um, but it really gave, gave me an appreciation um, an appreciation because a couple of kids don't appreciate anything you do for them anyway until they get older. Then it's like, oh, especially after they get older and they have kids, you know. Then, then all as you, I'm sure you know. Then all of a sudden you were, you know, what what what's the Mark Twain line, the the, the famous Mark Twain line that well, when I was what 14, my old man was the stupidest man I'd ever met. I'm paraphrasing, and by the time I was 20, I was amazing. I was the old man and learned in six years or whatever it is, you know. And that's kind of how it is. Well, you become a very loving and hands-on father, and uh, my hat goes off to you. Uh, uh, But you also reminded me in talking about your grandmother, one of the most moving interviews I ever did was of women. I've been very local here, but women over in Oakland who took crack babies during the real Mm. crack epidemic um, and raised them. Uh, Parents were imprisoned, uh, incarcerated, and, you know, Again, just those kind of unsung heroic deeds mm-hmm. are really remarkable. They make me look in awe. We should say, your grandfather now, 
in fact. You are a yes. grandfather. Oh, I'm a grandfather. Yes, I yeah, am. A young a grandfather, but still a grandfather. A very, very young grandfather. I'm 28. I don't know how the heck that happened. You know, um, I was reading up, I, was, I have to tell you this, speaking about you as a grandfather. Um, I, I'm not, I was reading some stuff about you, and there was uh, one column where you were quoted as, you were actually quoting your, your wife. You are saying, my white wife is uncomfortable when I say that I like that I'm attracted to white women or something along those lines. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, there's a line in, in Not a Genuine Black Man where I'm going through, you know, this is black, that's not black, I can't swim, that's black, I can't play basketball, that's not black, that kind of thing. And then I say, I like white women, that's black. Yeah. That's the joke. And she hated it. She hated that joke. But talk about that for a minute because, uh, you know, you've married white women, uh, a couple of them, and, you know, you've dated a lot of white women and so forth. And you ever feel any pushback on that or any, you know, sense of discomfort in... You know, to be honest with you, not really, you know, and I've dated African-American women too. I've dated Asian women too. I was, you know, I was engaged to, uh, to a Latina, um, woman, uh, things that unfortunately things didn't work out. Um, I think I remember that. Yeah. 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 But, um, in terms of pushback, um, when I would, now, now let me put this in perspective again, all of the girls I knew growing up from the time I was eight years old were white girls. I was the only African-American in my class in Catholic grade schools, school, right? Catholic schools, and in grammar school, in junior high school, and in high school. I was the only African-American student in my class. So if I wanted to date, um, that's, those were my options. And um, the pushback that I got was when I was, well, I'd say, it was, I'm gonna say when I was, when I was younger, um, because there were fathers who just, you know, adamantly refused to allow their daughters to go to a movie with me or something. But it also happened with my children's mother. And my daughter wrote a piece uh, for the Washington Post, and um, I would recommend that your listeners, it, it's available, Google it. Her name's Carolyn Copeland, and Google it. She wrote a piece for the Washington Post about how her grandfather uh, disowned their mother and would not see them because of the fact that I was African-American and they were half African-American. And how the rest of the family, even though the family disagreed with him, would not stand up to him, so therefore they were totally complicit. You know, so um, they were, my, my ex-wife was ostracized, completely ostracized. It's a sad, sad story. By, I read Caroline's. Uh, you read Caroline's uh, piece? I, I read it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it is, you know, and then he, he had some health problems, and I, I, the way I put it is he saw the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And then, uh, and then suddenly, um, you know, he gradually allowed um, my children, at least, into uh, in, in, into the fold. But it still wasn't 100. percent You know, Carolyn writes in the piece about how she'd be places with her white cousins and him, and he would go, "These are my grandchildren," and this is Carolyn. That's how he would introduce her. Wow. Yeah. Sad. Um, but look, she got in the Washington Post because of it. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't been in the Washington Post. <laughs> Uh, here's a, another Seattle question. If a joke has a structure like beginning, middle, end, mm -hmm. with all your experience, would you be willing to share your definition of the construction of a joke? I don't know what he means by construction of a joke. Just, you know, you've got it. It's got a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce the name of this. This is Sky from Seattle. Um, well, you know, I did a book about humor, as you know, about Jewish humor. Yeah. And... 
jokes are our narratives essentially for the most part i mean they do have beginning middle and yeah, ends there are many there are many stories there are many stories and they follow you know uh, uh, essentially the trajectory of a story they have mm-hmm. a denouement they have you know sometimes conflict and so forth they go mm-hmm. through revelation in the story and so forth you can just kind of deconstruct them pick them apart and there they are, stories. And, and where the laugh comes from is that the punchline is always a surprise. You know, if you see it coming, it's not funny. So the punchline is always a surprise, that you, you have no idea that it's coming, and that's what, that's what elicits the laughter. But, um, but there are times, too, when I've come up with a punchline that made me laugh and then had to work backwards and figure out what the setup is for that punchline that's going to get the, you know, the audience to laugh at it. Yeah, I was listening to a bit that Dave Chappelle was doing. He said he has a whole thing full of punchlines, and he'll just pick out those punchlines sometimes and then try to construct a joke Mm -hmm. around the punchline. I can't... That makes sense. I'm going to avoid saying the example he used, but it had to do with female genitalia. uh, Chappelle, you're kidding. Really? (laughs) I mean, the word, so I'm not going to go there. I don't... That's what I'm saying. I'm shocked. Yeah. (laughs) Well, his stuff gets pretty political, don't you think? Very political. Yeah, and sometimes almost didactic would that be too strong He's... no it wouldn't be yeah. it wouldn't be but when Chappelle is is at his best you know there other than no, chris rock there's nobody better very working funny. today yeah there's nobody better working today so let's talk about those comics that you admire i mean we just named two i think chris rock and and uh dave Chappelle and richard pryor we named three well pryor is the reason i became a comic too prior you know prior um I, I was 15 years old and I was sitting at home at midnight on a Saturday night watching HBO, and they showed that first concert film that he did, Richard Pryor live in concert, where he shot it in Long Beach. And it was where he made fun of his heart attack, and he told stories about his father's funeral and stories about, uh, you know, going on a hunting trip with his father. And I'd never heard comedy like that before. I mean, I grew up watching, you know, comics on variety shows in, in the 60s Ed Sullivan, and 70s. Yeah. Ed Sullivan kind of stuff and, you know, mother-in-law jokes and all of that kind of stuff. I'd never seen comedy like that before. And it just, it blew my mind. And then I started to go see comedy in San Francisco. I, I would go to the Punch Lounge and Cobbs and the other, and, uh, the other cafe and uh, the Holy City Zoo, which is where, where you went on. And, uh, and I just got hooked. Do you see any women comics that you really are keen on or like? Yeah, lot? yeah. Um, Lori Kilmartin is one uh, who, from here in the Bay Area who is just hysterical, who, made, who has always made me laugh. Lori uh, spent the last 11 years as a writer for Conan, and, uh, and she's back on stage uh, now working. Well, not that she ever stopped being on stage, but when you're writing you know, for a show like that, you don't get up as much as you'd like to. And, uh, and she's touring and she's, uh, you know, selling places out and, and doing great, but she absolutely cracks me up. Jan Karam, uh, in Los Angeles is another one who I think is very, very funny, who makes, who makes me laugh. Um, Amy Schumer does sometimes. Amy Schumer does sometimes, and then sometimes it's I haven't heard a lot from her recently, though. She's a mother now. That may have something to do with it. Well, she's got her show, Inside Amy Schumer. I think that she's still still on. I think she's still doing new episodes. And some of that's really brilliant. Some of those sketches are really funny and brilliant. Well, you read a lot, don't you? Uh, You know, lately, not as much as as I need to or as I like to. I'm so behind. I'm so behind. So what do you... Got to get ahead of to not be behind. Well, it's just because I'm doing. I'm. I've got like three different writing projects. No, I mean, what do you want to read that you haven't read? 
Uh, what do I want to read that I haven't read? Um, what is on my notes? I feel you should read. I remember when you were a young man uh, hanging around the radio station doing your Ray Tallahassee bit. I don't want to be too esoteric here, mm -hmm. but very funny bit. Of people remember Ray Taliaferro, an all-night uh, African-American guy who Brian did a brilliant uh, impersonation of. Impersonations were never your thing, but that yeah. was how, it was kind of how you got on the map. And that was. That's that how noticed. I ended up at KGO was because yeah. of that. But there was some pretty funny stuff that you were doing back then. But I remember you were also like seriously asking me questions about Hemingway back mm -hmm. in the day. Mm -hmm. Still do talk about Hemingway a little bit, don't you? A, a little bit, a little bit. Um, who do you feel you should read? Or who do I feel I should read? Um, I, I should finish reading the Rabbit books. You know that that I meant to do. I've, I've been There's four of them. How many? There are do you four want? of them. I've read one. Yeah. The first one? one? I've read the first one. Yeah. Which is what? Run, Rabbit, yeah. Run? Is that the first one? Rabbit, uh, rabbit Run. Yeah. Rabbit Run is the first and one. And Rabbit is Rich and Rabbit at Rest and uh, Rabbit Redux is the second one. Um, they're great books uh, and they get better, I think, but that's just maybe me. Mm, but that's absolutely in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of fiction, yeah. yeah. You read African-American writers? Um, not many. And it's not a deliberate choice. It's it's just, you know, when I'm looking in the Sunday Chronicle book section and something piques my interest or or I get Santa press book, you know, uh, that piques my interest. Uh, but not not as much as I should. Can I urge you to read writers that I'm very, Absolutely. I mean, sure. I think Baldwin is always worth reading. Uh -huh. I think Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is one of the great American novels, uh -huh. uh, almost bar nine. I think Toni Morrison is extraordinary. And uh, just to name three right off the yeah, top of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've read a lot of Langston Hughes short stories, even though I can't mention one that comes to, to mind right now because it's been a while. But uh, yeah, those, those, are, those are all. And Toni Morrison, I, which Toni Morrison do you, do you recommend to, to start with? Well, it's a tough read, but The Bluest Eye is her earliest novel. Yeah, like, okay. That got her on the map. And But I love a novel called Sula. I love a novel that she did uh, later called Song of Solomon. Uh, I've got Sula, in fact. I've got a copy of Sula. Sula is a terrific novel. Uh, I'm not as crazy about Beloved as a lot of people are, but you know, mm. it's certainly well worth reading. There's a little novel of hers called Jazz that I like a lot. Um, I think... Um, you could almost be well served by almost picking up anything of hers and reading it. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to inspire you to read more. Uh, I see that as one of my missions in life with people, <laughs> <laughs> being a longtime educator. Um, what's, uh, so how, how long is your run now with um, the present? With the new show? Uh, well, it opened in October, was supposed to run through November, and got extended. And we went to the beginning of December, then I took a holiday break, and then we came back in January. And uh, just uh, they'll be announcing soon that it's extended now through the end of April. And, but I'm just doing one night a week. I'm just doing Saturdays at 5. And uh, James from San Diego wants to know what are some of the projects you're working on now? I mean, is there something else uh, that we haven't mentioned that uh, is in the works or has come... Uh, Coming well, to the fore. Well, not, I'm I'm developing not a genuine black man with Rob Reiner for television. That's that's where the main energy is right now. Working on, I'm on the umpteenth draft of of a script for that. Um, Say television. We mean network, HBO, uh, uh, streaming. We're looking yeah. at it for streaming. Yeah. Uh, so exciting. There, there's that. Uh, there's the the crime novel that I wrote. Yeah. 
that um, I just had to do a rewrite on, and I uh, before it was agents sent it out for for publishers to look at. And I'm have I'm, you read Harlem Shuffle by any chance? Harlem Shuffle? No, 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 no I haven't. So it's, it's a crime novel by uh, Whitehead. It's uh, Colson Whitehead, and it's terrific. I think anyway. Um, so you always got stuff going. I've always got stuff going. And in, in terms of books, yeah, usually, you know, under normal circumstances, although it, it has slowed down some since the pandemic, you'd think I would have read more during the pandemic. And actually I got more into film than, than, uh, than, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, reading, but generally, you know, historically I've always been reading two books at once, one unabridged audio book for when I'm in the car and at the gym and, uh, and one hard, you know, hard copy traditional published book uh, that I'm reading. And usually it's a fiction and a nonfiction because I can't read two fiction books at the same time because I'll get plots confused. <laughs> I have a personal question. You pretty much conquered the depression, you think? I you mean, never conquered You depression. never really do, do you? You never do. No. You can you can know the triggers, you can have the meds, everything mm -hmm. else. It doesn't necessarily mean you can keep that at bay, really, does yeah. it? Yeah. No, no, you can't. I mean, you 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 can keep it at bay, and there are things. But in I mean, the, it's like being an alcoholic. You're never over the alcoholism. No, it can fall, just can collapse. Yeah, they're both. Well, they're both diseases, you know. And and the way that I've always described depression for me is, it's like being in a room with a dimmer switch, and and you know, you don't really almost like the, like the frog in the pot, you know. You don't realize that the light's getting dim until it's out. And then by the time it's out, it's too late. And so now um, with therapy and things, I've been able to start to notice at least, you know, when when the dimmer switch is on. Well, we've been talking a lot about humor. There are some who would argue perhaps that because of the worry and the anxiety and all that's tied to depression, it makes you have maybe more of a gift of humor than... Oh, no question. Yeah. Absolutely no question. I, you know, I've always said if you put 100 comics in a room and say every comic who suffered from depression or anxiety or some kind of a mental health issue or had a mental health crisis, raise your hand, 99 hands would go up and there'd be one liar. <laughs> well, you've certainly done an extraordinary amount and you've had quite a career, number of careers and uh, let me congratulate you on all your accomplishments. They've well, given me you. a good deal of pleasure and pride to observe as your friend and uh, I hope they continue and I hope that um, we can continue uh, what we've established in terms of rapport and uh, it's been great talking to you. Oh, great talking to you too. Thanks for having me. I'll see you in another 26 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we get around, what do you think, Alex? If we get around to him? <laughs> Brian Copeland. And I want to thank all of you who are with us for this live podcast uh, and thank those of you who will hear it recorded in the future. You're invited to join our growing community, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Members simply go to graymatter.show. Thanks once again to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and our newest teammate, Malachi, and once again, special thanks to this episode's guest, Brian Copeland. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.